When you zone in on one dietary style, it's easy to cherry pick evidence and don't pay attention to the information on the opposite side. When you're constantly putting fatty acids inside of a cell, your liver and muscle absorb those fatty acids. The cell goes into a sort of high energy fed state in a short period of time. What the cell is actually trying to do is say, hey, look, I don't want more energy. How can I block more energy? It says, okay, what if we were to block insulin from signal, which then causes a traffic jam inside of your blood? As you decrease fat intake and increase carbohydrate you actually see an improvement in insulin sensitivity. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. How excited are you guys? This episode has been so long awaited. It is a paradigm shifter for sure, at least for me personally, as well as a lot of my audience. I get so many questions about high carb, low fat diets, and especially the potentially controversial idea that they can actually help insulin and blood sugar regulation. I knew I had to do an episode on it. And the second I read the instant New York Times bestseller, Mastering Diabetes, I knew who I had to interview about it. That is Cyrus and Robbie. I love them so much because I truly get the sense that they aren't trying to cherry pick, that they're really looking at the literature, and they really dive deep into the science of insulin regulation, and particularly how dietary fat affects our insulin regulation. I encourage you to keep an open mind, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode. For a full transcript and all of the links in today's episode, go to the show notes. Those will be at melanieavalon.com slash diabetes. There will be a giveaway for this episode. So for that, please join my Facebook group. That is IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Check out the pin post for that giveaway. I am a Himalaya Partnered Show, and you can follow me in the Himalaya app, which is my favorite app of all time for listening to podcasts ever. Also, please subscribe in iTunes, even if you don't listen in iTunes and you listen in Himalaya, because iTunes is the number one platform for podcasts and actually subscribers really, really help with boosting the show and iTunes rankings, which can really help get it out there to an even broader audience. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So I have been waiting for this episode. I cannot even describe how long I am so excited about this moment. I feel like I should give you guys a little bit about my background so you'll know where I'm coming from. But for listeners, I'm here with Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbero. They are the authors of an incredible book that the second I read it, I knew I had to track them down. They are the authors of Mastering Diabetes, The Revolutionary Method to Reverse Insulin Resistance Permanently in Type 1, Type 1.5, Type 2, Prediabetes, and Gestational Diabetes. And for listeners, The reason I am absolutely thrilled about this book, and it has been on my mind so much, is that, as you guys know, I am historically from the paleo world. I started with the whole low-carb thing, the whole paleo diet. I've been interested in the carnivore diet. 
But all of that said, I become increasingly fascinated by the flip side of the spectrum, the seeming flip side, which is an extremely high carb, extremely low fat diet to do, and we can talk about this, do potentially similar health benefits that people seem to experience on ketogenic diets. I personally, it seems like there's almost this magical thing that can happen when you go on either side of the spectrum. And I'd love to get both of your thoughts on this, Cyrus and Robbie. I feel like in this macronutrient war, people think that either it's low carb, high fat or high carb, low fat, and that one is right, the other is wrong. When I think maybe it's more nuanced and maybe they actually both work as long as they're not practicing together. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us here. We really appreciate it, Melanie. And you know, we love talking not only about the benefits of a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, I will say, or, you know, regimen, but we also have done a ton of digging deep into the research to try and find what really happens to people who are eating low-carbohydrate diets and trying to do it from an unbiased perspective. You know, and you probably know when you get when you zone in on one dietary style, it's easy to cherry pick evidence and say, oh, okay this is why I do it. This is why I teach it. And you sort of don't pay attention to the information that is on the opposite side. So, you know, we have spent countless hours trying to be as unbiased as possible in the search for information. And we can talk all about that today for sure. No, I am so glad you brought that up. That is one of the things that I found so refreshing in your book and your approach is exactly what you just said, because I think there is and it drives me crazy, the overwhelming amount of cherry picking that happens in evaluating dietary approaches. And it makes sense because I, I think what happens so often is people, you know, they might have a health issue that they want to address and then they find a diet that works for them. And so they think it's the cure-all and they think it's automatically going to work for everybody. And then they look for the research that supports that. And there is research to support that. So then there's no reason for them to look at the other side or consider the other side. And then also I think cherry picking comes in, even if you try not to, I don't know. I was just so thrilled to read your book and I could really sense that you guys were not trying to cherry pick that, you know, you were doing the research, doing the science, and this is what you were finding. So I'm really, really excited. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I get, we're excited as well. I love when we get on a show where somebody, the host says, my audience is, is technical and understand the nuances. Cause like you said, there are a lot of details. There are a lot of, you know, granular things to look at to really understand what's going on. So the fact that we can dive deep into that today is a lot of fun, really exciting. So excited. So I guess to start things off before we do get into the details, would you like to both tell listeners briefly about your own story and how you how you both came to where you are with with this dietary approach for mastering diabetes? For sure. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 22. I was going to Stanford University. I was a senior and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life. About halfway through as I was studying for finals in December, I started to feel very thirsty, like extremely thirsty to the point where I was drinking about a gallon, between one and two gallons per, of water per day. And it seemed like no matter how much water I drank, I got thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. In addition to that, because I was drinking so much water, I would end up going to the bathroom and urinating about 17 to 20 times a day, like clockwork every 30 minutes. When I would go to sleep, I would cramp up because I was electrolyte depleted, having flushed so many fluids. So I would go to sleep 
And you know that feeling where your calf muscle cramps up and then you try and stretch it and then all of a sudden your opposite hamstring cramps up and then your abdomen cramps up. So there were moments where I was lying in bed and I was almost in full body rigor mortis because there were three, four, five, six different muscle groups that were all cramping at the same time. So I picked up the phone, I called my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy, and I said, hey, Shanaz, help me. What are all these symptoms and why am I experiencing them? And she's a pretty cool cucumber and she's very smart. And she started crying immediately and said, Cyrus, everything that you're saying is that you have type 1 diabetes, go straight to the health center, drop everything you're doing right now. And I didn't know anything about diabetes at that time, nothing about human health because I was just studying mechanical engineering. So I turned to her and I was like, Shanaz, stop. I don't have diabetes. Diabetes is only about old people and cake. That's literally what I thought it was. And she said, Cyrus, I don't have time to explain. Go right now. So I dropped everything, went straight to the health center. They checked my blood glucose while I was there. My blood glucose was in the 600s. Now, just for context here, your average blood glucose, a normal physiological blood glucose is between about 80 and 130 on a daily basis. And so if we were to check your blood glucose, Melanie, at any point in time in a non-diabetic setting, because you're non-diabetic, you would be within that range. So I was about six times higher than I should have been. They took me to the hospital. They gave me fluids in one arm, insulin in the other, and they started to control my blood glucose over the course of 24 hours. When I got discharged from the hospital 24 hours later, not only was I diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune version of diabetes, but I also was diagnosed with two other autoimmune conditions. It became conclusive that I was now living with three autoimmune conditions. The first one that I had developed was about six months prior, and that one is Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. The second one is called alopecia universalis, and that basically is just code for total hair loss. So I don't have any hair. I have no eyebrows, no eyelashes, no ear hair, no nose hair, no chest hair, no leg hair, nothing. I used to, but then I lost it all. And that happened at about the same time as hypothyroidism. And then the third one was type 1 diabetes. And all three of those set in within a six-month period at the age of 22. And I was very scared. The doctors had no idea. They said, oh, you have this thing called a polyglandular autoimmune syndrome. We've literally never seen anybody with this combination of autoimmune conditions. We don't know what to tell you. And I was like, wow, that's not very promising. So I get discharged from the hospital 24 hours after entering with a blood glucose meter, test strips, two ty- a prescription for two different types of insulin, syringes, a carbohydrate counting guide, and a life alert bracelet that says, hey, in case you find me passed out on the sidewalk, call 911. So I went back to my normal life and I was terrified and confused and I had no idea what to do. The doctors did tell me at that time, they said, hey, listen, if you eat a low carbohydrate diet, that's the best thing that you can do to control your blood glucose because it controls your glucose very well and it prevents you from using more insulin over the course of time. So do that. And I said, okay, great. That sounds like a plan. I followed their recommendations and that was to eat things like lean meat, whether it was red meat or white meat, to eat fish, to eat eggs, to have dairy products in my diet, to try and limit my intake of things like potatoes and rice and corn and fruits and breads and cereals and pastas. And I understood the philosophy, you know, the more carbohydrate rich food that you eat, the higher your blood glucose could go and the more insulin you might need. So I said, okay, great. And I tried to keep my carbohydrate intake very low. Now my glucose was supposed to come, supposed to become very controllable. But my glucose became a complete roller coaster, a disaster. And so as a result of that, I started using more insulin and more insulin and more insulin. When I first got diagnosed, I was on about 25 units of insulin per day. And within a three-month period, I was using 45 units of insulin per day. 
So somehow, even though despite I was eat- the fact that I was eating a low carbohydrate diet, my insulin use was climbing and my blood glucose was a joke and I just could not figure out what was going wrong. So I started looking for more information and I had no idea what I was looking for. All I knew was that I was j- literally just looking for a way to feel better, to have more controllable blood glucose, to have more energy, to have less achy joints and less achy muscles. And I stumbled across this idea of eating a plant-based diet. And I said, okay, great. I'll give it a try. No problem. And under the guidance of a doctor named Dr. Doug Graham, who went on to write a book called the 80-10-10 book, he basically taught me how to eat a plant-based diet that was 100% plant-based. So he taught me how to eat lots of fruits and lots of vegetables. It was literally that simple from the get-go. And under his supervision, he showed me how I could dramatically reduce my total fat intake and increase my carbohydrate intake and get better control of my blood glucose, even though it was counterintuitive and it didn't seem to make sense. So my willing suspension of disbelief said, okay, great, I'll try this out. If it works, cool. If it doesn't work, well, then I'll try something different. And I can't even tell you, Melanie, within the first 24 hours of doing this approach for you know low-fat, plant-based, whole food, my blood glucose fell so quickly and kept on falling and kept on coming in low that I had to back off on the amount of insulin I was using very quickly. And so within a seven-day window, my glucose went from being an average of like 180, maybe 200 or so on a daily basis to an average of like 80, like pegged flat. And the beauty was that I was consuming 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. So I went from eating 100 grams of carbohydrate to 600 grams of carbohydrate and my insulin use fell. It went from 45 units back down to 25 units. So I was effectively eating six times as much carbohydrate for 40% less insulin. And in that minute that that happened to me, I knew something interesting was happening. So long story short, I went back to graduate school. I enrolled in a PhD program at UC Berkeley because I wanted to understand what the heck was happening inside of me. I wanted to be able to put some science on it. While I was there, I learned that not only is there a whole collection of studies that perfectly describe the biological mechanisms that I experienced in my own body, but that a lot of those mechanisms apply to people living with all other forms of diabetes, whether type 1.5, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, gestational diabetes, you name it. And as a result of learning that information, Robbie and I ended up meeting each other. We teamed up and we created Mastering Diabetes to teach people living all around the world, regardless of the type of diabetes you're living with, how to transition to a plant-based diet to get very similar results and even better. So here we are, you know, three, four years after starting Mastering Diabetes, and we've changed the lives of, you know, more than 100,000 people, and we're very, very happy and only really getting started. That is so incredible. I bet listeners' ears are really perking up because people just don't anticipate, especially in the, like, the paleo sphere and the low-carb world, this idea that a high-carb, low-fat, plant-based diet could have those results. Do you mind if I ask you a really, really quick question? When you first went low carb to address the, the insulin issues, because you mentioned reducing rice or reducing carbs, were you still including them at all, but just like less of them or were they cut out completely? The reason I'm, I'm wondering is something you talk about in the book is how a lot of the problems with studies on low-fat diets are that they're not low-fat enough. And I could not agree more (laughs) because it's like, it just drives me crazy that there are a lot of studies that are quote low-fat, but they're not low-fat enough. So once you have that fat in there, it's going to be messing with the mechanisms, at least I think. So you might not get 
the outcomes that you would get if it were low fat enough. But I think that the same could also apply sometimes to low carb studies that they're not low carb enough. So I was just wondering, like in your personal experience doing low carb, if it was like low carb ketogenic or was it just lower carb, higher fat? I'm actually really glad you asked that question. The answer is I was not eating a ketogenic diet because a ketogenic diet didn't exist in 2003. I mean, the philosophy did. It was just called something different. It was called the Atkins diet, I believe, at that time. But no, I was not consuming 30 grams of net carbohydrate maximum and eating the rest in protein and fat. I was eating on average about 100 grams of carbohydrate per day. What's interesting is that if you go into the literature to look at what is the actual classification of a low-carbohydrate diet, there's no general consensus for the number of grams per day or the percentage of your diet per day that is technically low-carb. And the number 100 grams falls well within the range of what's considered a quote-unquote low-carb diet. So some studies go all the way upwards of including about 150 grams of carbohydrate. Some of them go to about 120. Some of them go even lower at 75 or as, as low as 30. So point being is, you know, technically speaking, I was following a low-ish carbohydrate diet because that's the information that was presented to me at that time. Okay. Yeah. That's so interesting to hear that clarification. Cause I, I do wonder, like you guys talk about, like I said, with the low fat side of things, you know, for low carb, how low carb would it need to be in order to have the effects? Cause I, I think it might be so delicate to the point where that if it's low carb enough, there's some sort of magic that happens. But then if it's just, just over by just a tiny bit, I think it could very quickly actually be detrimental because it's like you're having enough carbs in to mess with the signaling and, and everything, but then you're, you have a high fat intake. So I feel like it can go pretty bad, pretty quick, even if it's still quote low carb. You're totally right. And we can get into more, more details about the actual numbers when we talk more about ketogenic diets. Because you're, you hit it on the head, there's like a magic as far as blood glucose control is concerned. If you get below a particular threshold, which is somewhere around about 30 grams of net carbohydrate per day, then your blood glucose becomes very, very flatline. And we know this, and we've talked to lots of people who are eating ketogenic diets, and we've seen this. But despite the fact that your blood glucose becomes much more controllable, there's longer term effects, which are very important to pay attention to. So even though the short-term control of blood glucose becomes fantastic, there's sometimes some very detrimental long-term effects that we can't not pay attention to. You know, those are things that we can talk about in a little bit. Awesome. Teaser, teaser. And so how about for you, Robbie? So what was your history coming to this? I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12, just about to turn 13. So I've been living with type 1 now for over 20 years. And my older brother was diagnosed eight years prior to me. So I was familiar with the condition. I was familiar with the symptoms. And I actually went to my mom and said, Mom, I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I'm thirsty all the time. I think I have diabetes just like Steve. And she's like, no, no, don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. So I listened to her. And then eventually she was out of town in Florida looking at homes because we were going to move to Florida. And I was at home with my brother. And she called to check in and say, hey, how are things going at home? And I said, mom, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping the whole night. She said, okay, go upstairs, use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. And I was well over 400. And like Cyrus said, you're supposed to be far lower than that, somewhere between 80 and 130. 
And my brother said right then and there, yep, you have type 1 diabetes, pack your bag, you're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. So we went to the general doctor and we had the official diagnosis there and then went to the hospital for a few nights. My dad flew back, both of my parents flew back the next day. And I just remember him saying, just an inconvenience, don't worry about it. You can just do whatever you want in life. It's all good. So that was kind of the the way we looked at it. And my parents wanted to make sure that my brother and I had the best medical care we could possibly have. So we went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I had an endocrinologist, I had a psychologist, I had a dietitian. We did our best to follow all the guidelines. I would, you know, follow the food pyramid and my mom made sure I had fruit at dinner every night. My fruit would be canned oranges, <laughs> mandarin oranges with all that syrupy stuff in there. It tasted amazing. Whenever I had strawberries, I would certainly put powdered sugar on top. Just a very standard American diet growing up. And I ended up with some standard American symptoms. I ended up having cystic acne in high school, which was very frustrating. I did everything you possibly could. I did the microdermal abrasion treatments. I did laser treatments, pills, creams, everything. Eventually, they put me on Accutane, which is one of the most serious drugs you can take for acne. And your parents have to sign a waiver because some people have committed suicide on that drug. But I felt like that's what I had to do. I did that too, by the way, Accutane. It's intense. <laughs> to like fill out the forms and it's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you totally understand. I also had plantar fasciitis, which was a really frustrating, painful condition in the arches of my feet. And as a competitive tennis player, I did everything I could to try and treat that. So I wore big blue boots at night for passive stretching. I would get sick every year, even though I took Nasonex and Claritin D, I would still get sick. I had warts on my feet. So just some, some frustrating symptoms. And eventually, I just started to learn about eating a healthy diet. My dad was sort of an entry point because he sold supplements. And that was the beginning of me learning that, wait a minute, there's something I can do to actually impact my health. Like what goes in my body actually matters. And that was just the beginning. So while I was in high school in Sarasota, Florida, I went to Barnes and Noble to get some spark notes like a high school student does. And a book fell off the shelf. This is not a book I'm recommending. <laughs> this is called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures I Don't Want You to Know About. And this guy had infomercials all over the place. The guy sold millions of books. Eventually, he went to jail for some fraud. So like I said, I'm not recommending it. But the book planted a seed in my mind that maybe it's possible to reverse type 1 diabetes. If I do everything I possibly can to be as healthy as humanly possible, maybe my body can generate some new beta cells. Like, why not? Like, what's going on here? Somebody has to be the first to do it. Roger Bannister was the first one to run a four-minute mile. All the smartest people in the world told him that's not possible. And once he did it, a bunch of other people have done it since. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do anything and everything. And that just sent me on this journey to learn and learn and learn and apply everything that made sense to me. And over time, I tried the Weston A. Price Foundation diet. I was eating a lot of grass-fed beef, or I drank raw milk. I would go to the local farmer's market and buy milk for cats because you can't sell raw milk to humans. <laughs> and I, I followed the guidelines. I didn't see any really major transformation in my diabetes health. I did feel a little better, you know, getting rid of a lot of junk food, but nothing major happened. And I was continuing my mission to learn and learn. And eventually, I came across what is now would be considered a plant-based ketogenic diet. This was 
Gabriel Cousins teaching a, a phase one diet where I would eat plenty of olive oil, lots of nuts and seeds, and a lot of greens and vegetables. But even some foods like you know bell peppers, you had to be careful with because they had a little bit too much sugar in them. You know, it's too sweet. And fruits were definitely out in the phase one program. So I followed this diligently. And I'm going to, usually I don't go into so much granular detail here about the numbers, but since you said your listeners are interested, I'm going to go very, very granular on the numbers here. So as a person living with type one diabetes, we are all fascinating test subjects of insulin sensitivity because I have a C-peptide of less than 0.01. So meaning it's basically undetectable, meaning my pancreas is producing no insulin. Whatever I inject, that's what's working. So I know how much insulin I'm injecting. We count our carbohydrate content that we consume, and we measure our blood glucose all the time, which back then, there were not continuous glucose monitors. I was doing finger sticks. Now I have a CGM. So when I started following this plant-based keto diet, my total carbohydrates were 70 grams of carbohydrate per day. That was my total, but the net was was thirty. Okay, so I did not. I did follow a truly low, you know, plant based ketogenic low carbohydrate diet. And while doing this, as at this point, I'm a freshman at the University of Florida. I took the least amount of insulin I've ever taken. So I, my total insulin per day was about ten units per day, and I was taking only fast acting insulin. I didn't use any basil. I literally would wake up in the middle of the night every so every like I don't know three or four hours or so to inject a small amount. I was basically using an insulin pump with multiple daily injections. That's a very small amount of insulin to use. So if you do the the ratio there, if you want to do total carbohydrate, that's going to be seven to one. If you want to, then the other way to look at it is glucose, and we'll get there in a second. So fast forward, I start to learn about the low-fat plant-based whole food diet. I actually heard Doug Graham on a podcast. And this guy, Doug Graham, he has a book called The 801010 Diet. It's the same person that Cyrus learned from. And the podcast blows me away. I'm like, wait a minute. I can eat all this fruit. And this guy's saying like, I can cleanse heavy metals. And this is like a big deal. I'm like, let me, let me just give this a shot. I, this was in December of 2000. No, this is in September of 2006. The book comes out in December of 2006. And Cyrus is one of the testimonials in the back. I'm like, wait a minute, this is interesting. Another type one doing this program. So that instilled even more confidence in me. And I look Cyrus up and I'm like, this guy's fit. He's active. Like, this is great. I'm going to keep going. I sign up for a coaching program with Doug Graham. It was a 90-day program online. I emailed him every single day. He emailed me back every single day. And I learned how to do this low-fat, plant-based whole food diet. I'm eating tons of fruit. And I start eating... 600, 700 more grams of carbohydrate per day. And my total insulin intake goes up, but my insulin sensitivity is going like through the roof in the sense of like how much insulin I need for how many grams of carbohydrate I'm consuming is is shockingly low. And I'm having lots of low blood glucose readings. I'm like, what is going on? I have to keep on changing my dosage. So now when I go back and I look at the data, I use average of 27 total units of insulin per day. Now I take long-acting insulin and short-acting insulin. You combine the two, about 27 units total per day. A normal, healthy human pancreas is going to secrete somewhere between 25 and 50 units of insulin. 
So if you're a person, a, a really confusing thing that happens in the world of diabetes health for type ones is people think taking less and less insulin is the goal. Like that's success. And that would only be success if you knew at the same time, you were also starting to produce more and more of your own insulin. That would be amazing. But really, the goal for people living with type 1 diabetes or any form of insulin-dependent diabetes is to use the same amount of insulin you would have, you know, a physiological normal amount of insulin you would have used before your pancreas was damaged. So this is a healthy amount of insulin. And what I realized looking at the numbers is if I'm eating, you know, 750 grams of carbohydrate per day using you know, 27 units, we're talking like a 27 to 1 ratio. So 7 to 1, when you look at total carbohydrate, 7 to 1 on a plant-based keto diet, 70 divided by 10 versus 750 divided by 27, okay? Now, where it gets interesting is if you start to look at just glucose. So let's say you, people argue, well, you know what? You're just eating a lot of fiber and you're eating a lot of fructose and fructose doesn't require insulin. So that's why your ratios look so good. So if you use a nutrition app like Chronometer, you can actually see the exact amount of glucose you're consuming. So you go to the carbohydrate section, you break it down, you're going to add up starches, you're going to add up glucose, and you're going to add, and then sucrose, you take one half of that, all right? And you can see your total glucose. Now, when doing the plant-based ketogenic diet, I was consuming about 10 grams of glucose per day. So you take 10 units of insulin, 10 grams of glucose, we're talking a one-to-one ratio when you're looking at the glucose. Now, on a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, I'm consuming about 270 grams of glucose per day divided by 27. Now we're talking about a 10 to 1 ratio when you're looking at just the glucose. That's a 900% change in insulin sensitivity. And this is really what our entire book is about. This is what our methodology is about, is really this understanding the concept of what lifestyle habits can you employ to increase your insulin sensitivity, your, your body's ability to take glucose out of your bloodstream into your cells. So that was really the, the life-changing experience and insight that I had. And being a student at the University of Florida at the time, I was able to access you know, really high-quality journals and find out that this topic has literally been documented for almost 100 years of people showing as you decrease fat intake and increase carbohydrate intake, you actually see an improvement in insulin sensitivity. And you realize, hey, that's actually the cause of prediabetes and the cause of type 2 diabetes. Therefore, we know how to actually solve those conditions. And then for type 1, type 1.5, and insulin-dependent type 2, if we maximize the insulin sensitivity, we reduce long-term chronic disease risk give people more energy, help them reach their ideal body weight, and help them have predictable blood glucose control. It's like, wow, we, we, we got to get this out to more people. So we created the Mastering Diabetes Method, we put it in a book, and here we are today. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
It's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I am so fascinated by all of this. And for listeners, even if you don't have, you know, type 1 diabetes or quote diabetes, I think the information that you're going through and what we can learn from it is so valuable to anybody looking to, you know, address their blood sugar levels and their insulin sensitivity. I'd love to go deeper into the science of what's actually happening, but I have a quick question. So it's so fascinating to me that, you know, you started take, eating way more carbs. I mean, yes, it required more insulin, but the ratio, it was a much better ratio in favor of the insulin required for the carbs. Is it a situation where because you were choosing to be metabolically fueled on carbs in that, quote, extreme situation where if you were to add in fat, that you would be less tolerant of the fat? So like the flip side situation would be if a person is on a low carb diet and then they bring in carbs and they have this seeming insulin resistance or they, they can't quite tolerate, you know, a small amount of carbs. So is it a situation where a person kind of has to choose to be fueling on fat or fueling on carbs? And then when they're in that situation, they have to be very careful adding in that other macronutrient. So you're bringing up a fascinating point. It's like you like stole the words out of my mouth. That's exactly what we'll say. You, you have to pick one. You, you cannot be in the middle. That, that is a true disaster. And, and, and once you pick one, I mean, our mission here is literally just to educate people. Like we always say, we're not the food police. We're just going to give you the information. You get to decide, you know, which path you want to go on and, and take the risk that you, you want to take. Like there's just, we're just going to enlighten people on the consequences that we see and the research that we're aware of. But, but pick one. And we always like to say how much we respect people who do 
you know, a truly, truly low carbohydrate diet, just like you were saying, you're defining like the difference earlier between like doing a truly low carbohydrate diet. And we talked about doing a truly low fat diet and not getting confused about the research that actually isn't doing that. So anybody who really is doing it, like we have so much more in common than we don't have in common. And, and the, all these people doing these, these different diets and really like there's, there's part of the solution. The real problem we have in this country is the apathy is the people who are doing nothing. And so like on both sides, it's just, it should be a lot of respect and acknowledgement and then just sharing information so people can decide where, where they want to go. I love this so much. My next book, I actually want to be something where it's like why they both work. It's like, pick which one you want to do. Diving into what's actually going on. So when a person eats a meal and let's say that it is mixed macro, so it has protein, fats, and carbs, what happens? <laughs> so like, what is the order of insulin release? What is the order of the fuel processing when it is a mixed macro meal? And what is the effect on the body? Yeah, it's a great question. Okay, let's go hardcore into some biochemistry here. Think about it this way. When, when you're consuming a low-carbohydrate diet, low-carbohydrate diet, whether you slice it as 30 grams of net carbohydrate or 75 grams of net carbohydrate or 100 grams of net carbohydrate, the idea here is that the total carbohydrate value of the food that you're eating is quite low. In that situation, the two predominant macronutrients are dietary fat and dietary protein. So protein is basically just a, a collection of amino acid sequences. And dietary fat comes in predominantly as this molecule called triglyceride. So triglyceride is basically, it's a macromolecule that is a glycerol backbone with three fatty acid residues attached to it. So you can sort of think of it as basically having a backbone with three fatty acids that all are attached to one unit. Now, you consume the triglyceride in food. And the triglyceride comes in the form of Again, you get it from foods that are fat-rich, whether those are dairy products, red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, poultry. It could even be things like peanut butter and olive oil and olives and coconuts from the plant-based world. Regardless, triglyceride is sort of the main mechanism or the main storage form that both animals and plants use. Triglyceride gets inside of your mouth. It travels down your esophagus. It gets inside of your stomach. It starts to get very sort of like partially torn apart in a very weak way. And then eventually it gets inside of your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, you can think of it as basically being like a bioreactor in which there are multiple organs that are, that are manufacturing digestive enzymes and placing them into that space. One of those organs is your liver. So your liver manufactures and secretes digestive enzymes and puts them into your small intestine. Your small intestine itself creates its own digestive enzymes. Your pancreas itself creates other digestive enzymes. So the combination of the three of these organs are putting digestive juices inside of your small intestine. And inside of your small intestine was where the bulk of nutrient extraction and nutrient digestion occurs. So the triglyceride molecule at this point gets, gets broken apart. And the three fatty acids end up getting pulled off of the glycerol backbone. And those three fatty acids also get absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. So think of it as like a hose. You have water flowing on the inside of the hose. If you sort of poke holes on the outside of the hose, then the water that's on the inside can basically escape through the walls of the hose and get on the outside. So that's kind of what's happening inside of your small intestine. The fatty acids end up going inside of the lymph system, and inside of your lymph system, they're then circulated into your blood. And once they're inside of your blood, they get packaged inside of these things called chylomicron particles. And the chylomicron particles circulate, and their, their role is to distribute 
fatty acids to tissues all throughout your body. So a simple way to think about this would be if the fatty acids that came in your diet ended up getting inside of these chylomicron particles, and then those chylomicrons delivered the fatty acids to only your adipose tissue, then diabetes itself as a condition wouldn't be that big of a deal. Diabetes would probably still exist, but it wouldn't be as prevalent as it is in today's world. The reason for that is because your adipose tissue is a safe place to store fatty acids. It's mechanically and enzymatically designed to be able to uptake large amounts of fatty acids when present inside of your diet. And it's designed to hold on to those fatty acids for a significant period of time and then release those fatty acids when the time is right. The problem happens when those chylomicron particles distribute those fatty acids to your adipose tissue, but then they also distribute to your liver and to your muscle. Because your liver and muscle are two other organs that are capable of absorbing and uptaking fatty acids for energy, except they are designed differently than your adipose tissue. They're designed to store small amounts of fatty acids, but not necessarily large amounts of fatty acids. Okay? So how do we know this to be true? The reason we know this to be true is because the glycolysis pathway, which is basically the pathway that's responsible for degrading a glucose molecule and extracting energy out of it to create ATP, the glycolysis pathway is extremely active inside of your muscle and extremely active inside of your liver. And there's many processes that stem off of the glycolysis pathway. And the glycolysis pathway is sort of like a central biochemical pathway that's present in both of those tissues. In your adipose tissue, your adipose tissue can also perform glycolysis, but to a much smaller extent because its fuel supply is different. Its fuel supply is fatty acids. Not only can it hold on to and store fatty acids for a long period of time and then release them to other tissues when the time is right, but fatty acids also run off of predominantly fatty acids because that's what they're storing. They can do glycolysis, but to a much smaller extent. So to a certain extent, you can sort of think about the tissues as burning. They're, they're having a, they have a different engine, a different fuel utilization. And as a result of that, when you take fatty acids and you shunt them towards the liver and towards the muscle, the liver and muscle are capable of storing it, but it's not necessarily the way that they were designed. So over the course of time, if you're consuming a diet that's rich in fat, and there's a constant supply of fatty acids that are coming in through your small intestine, through chylomicrons, and getting inside of your liver and muscle. Your liver and muscle basically absorb those fatty acids because they're present, and because they also don't really have very good mechanisms to block those fatty acids from coming in. If you take a look at the actual like, fatty acid transport mechanisms on the cell surface to try and understand, like, well, if a liver cell doesn't really want more fatty acids and it's not designed to store fatty acids, why doesn't it just turn it off and, and shut them down? And the answer is the fatty acid transport proteins on the surface and the fatty acid transport sort of mechanisms are not highly regulated mechanisms, which means that when there's a significant amount of lipid inside of your blood, that lipid can get inside of your liver and muscle without too much complication. So your liver and muscle end up accumulating fatty acids over the course of time. And once they've accumulated a significant amount of fatty acids, there's, there's some very fascinating research that actually shows the direct mechanism by which an accumulation of excess fatty acids, particularly saturated fatty acids, starts to antagonize the function of the insulin receptor and the proteins 
inside of the cell downstream from the insulin receptor. Now, why the heck would this be the case? The simple way to think about it would be when a cell is basically increasing in its fatty acid supply, fatty acid is just a form of energy. So the cell is generally responding to the amount of energy present inside of it. In a low energy environment, there's an entire cascade of biochemical activity that occurs. In a high energy environment, there's a different cascade of biochemical pathways that occur. So when you're constantly putting fatty acids inside of a cell, it's a, it's a high energy signal. And because it's equivalent to more than twice as much energy as you'd get from glucose or protein, the amount of energy inside of the cell goes up and it goes up relatively quickly. So the cell goes into a sort of like high energy, quote unquote, fed state in a, in a short period of time. And in that particular situation, what the cell is actually trying to do is say, hey, look, I don't want more energy. How can I block more energy from coming inside of me? So again, if it had an ability to say, hey, stop coming in here, fatty acids, it would do so. But again, the mechanisms are not very sophisticated. So what it does is it says, okay, what if we were to block insulin from signaling? If we were to block insulin from signaling, we could slow down the rate at which these fatty acids are coming in. But in addition to that, we can also block another fuel, which is called glucose. So these cells go into a self-protective mechanism, a self-protective mode in which they basically say, hey, if we just play this insulin resistance game and, be, and make ourselves resistant to insulin or reject insulin or tell insulin to go away, then we can slow down the rate of fatty acid coming in and we can block glucose almost entirely. So that's what they do. So they go into this self-protective mode. And as a result of that self-protective mode, when there's carbohydrate present in your diet, whether you eat a banana or a bowl of quinoa or maybe some beans, the carbohydrate energy gets broken down into glucose. The glucose is trying to get inside of the cells. The glucose comes accompanied by insulin. Insulin knocks on the door, says, hey, knock, knock, liver cell, knock, knock, muscle cell. There's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? Go right now if you do. And the liver and muscle respond by saying, uh-uh, remember we're playing this insulin resistance thing. We don't necessarily have a biological need for that fuel right now. Go away. So as a result of that, the glucose ends up sitting trapped inside of the blood, can't get inside of liver and muscle very effectively. And insulin also gets trapped inside of your blood because it cannot communicate with the liver and cannot communicate with the muscle very effectively. So in this particular situation, the liver and muscle have made themselves insulin resistant, which then causes a traffic jam inside of your blood that forces glucose and insulin to accumulate in higher concentrations, which is exactly why in a typical diabetic patient, a pre-diabetic patient, someone who's on their way to type 2 diabetes, when they present at the doctor, they present with high blood glucose and high insulin at the same time. And in most cases, a lot of these patients also test with high lipids. So they're hyperinsulinemic, they're hyperglycemic, and they're hyperlipidemic at the same time. So a simple way to reverse this problem, actually before we even get to the reversal, the important takeaway message here is that people in the low carbohydrate world will often report the same thing. They'll say, hey, I ate one banana and my blood glucose went up and it went up very high. I ate one peach and I checked my blood glucose two hours later and it was 175. I ate a small bowl of rice and my blood glucose went up to 220. I told you carbohydrates are bad for me. I shouldn't eat carbohydrates. Have you heard people say that before in the low carbohydrate world? Yeah, I'm 100%. Okay. Yeah, it does seem that when you are following a low-carb diet for an extended period of time, then you bring in the carbs that it's like you just don't have a tolerance of them is what it seems like. 
exactly right. From a biochemical perspective, you don't. So like going back to what you said at the beginning about fat cells are great for storing fat, liver and muscle, you know, not ideal. Say that these lipid droplets aren't filled with fat in your muscle and liver and you have room to store fat in your fat cells. Does it vary by person? Like would a quote normal healthy person, if they eat a really high fat meal, will it preferentially first go to fat cells and then muscle and liver? Or is it really individual? Like could a person eat a high fat meal and one person, the fat preferentially goes into their fat cells so they don't get issues of fat building up in the liver or fat building up the muscles and causing these insulin issues. Whereas another person eats a high fat meal and the fat preferentially stores in the liver and the muscle. And then they are more likely to experience issues with carbohydrate tolerance. So in order to answer that question, what we would do is have to go into research and try and find out what happens to people in randomized controlled trials that are fed either a single high fat meal or that are fed a high fat meal over the course of time, over the course of, you know, weeks to weeks to a month. There's a number of papers that actually clearly demonstrate how even a single high fat meal, literally one high fat meal can increase postprandial glycemia and increase postprandial insulinemia by as much as 65% in the subsequent five hours. These studies were done in individuals who were living with type 1 diabetes because people with type 1 diabetes, as Robbie alluded to earlier, are excellent test subjects that can be used in research because you can fully control the amount of insulin that goes into their body. And so these are healthy, lean individuals that have no, that are well controlled in their blood glucose. And I'll quote from the paper here. It says, the addition of 30 grams of fat to 30 grams of carbohydrate Increased glycemia by two millimoles per liter at five hours. And similarly, the addition of 40 grams of protein to the same amount of carbohydrate, which is 30 grams of carbohydrate, increased glycemia by 2.4 millimolars at five hours. When both nutrients, both the fat and the protein, were added to the meal, the postprandial glycemic response was increased by 5.4 millimole per liter, the sum of the effects of the two nutrients individually. So, effectively, what they're saying to answer your question is, these individuals were fed 30 grams of carbohydrate in a single meal, and then they were either given 30 grams of carbohydrate with 30 grams of fat or 30 grams of carbohydrate with 40 grams of protein. And in both of those two separate scenarios, they experienced higher glycemic excursions and a high, up to a 65% increased insulin requirement after the meal. And the effects were additive in the sense that if you took a third meal and created 30 grams of carbohydrate, plus 30 grams of fat, plus 40 grams of protein together, then they have the highest glycemic excursion with the highest insulin response in the postprandial state. What I wonder though about that situation is, speaking of what we were talking about in the beginning about having a cap of carbs to qualify as low carb and still achieve the benefits, I wonder, so if they were doing 30 grams of carbs, and this is the first time we hear in the study, so I'm just thinking out loud. So if they were doing 30 grams of carbs in a single meal, do you think that you can make the same extrapolations of that in a high-fat context compared to having that amount of fat and carbs, or that amount of carbs at least spread throughout the day? I just wonder if the meal had been... 10 grams of carbohydrate. Yeah, or just the protein and the fat. Yeah, what you're getting at is, is actually a very true statement, which is that if you're consuming a meal that is a mixed meal, you have some carbohydrates, some fat, some protein, 
And if they're in like kind of relatively equivalent amounts, then like biochemistry becomes very complicated. And things like insulin resistance, the whole mechanism can, can get set into play relatively quickly. So that's why we, I refer to that as sort of like the middle ground. Okay. It's like, it's the place where you don't necessarily want to be. It's a standard American diet where you're eating like 40, 40, 20 carbohydrate, fat, protein, or 30, 30, 30, something like that. Carbohydrate, fat, protein. That's like a, that's a disaster zone. And we know through plenty of randomized control trials that that is a recipe for chronic disease. So if you split to one side, you can either go to the left-hand side, which is ketogenic, low, super low carbohydrate, or you can go to mastering diabetes, which is super low fat, plant-based whole food nutrition, right? In either direction, no matter which direction you go, you will absolutely get better blood glucose control. The dynamics of insulin and glucose and fatty acids and amino acids will change. And they change differently whether you go into the low-carbohydrate zone or they change differently if you go into the high-carbohydrate zone or the, the low-fat zone, I will say. Here's another nuance I wonder say you have a person, there's also a caveat because you, you talk about in your book, the study by Sweeney, where he compared patients eating carbs, patients eating high protein, patients fasting and patients eating a high fat diet, and then measured their, their insulin sensitivity on a meal after and the, the patients fasting and the patients actually with the fat had the worst insulin sensitivity. I remember the Sweeney study. That's a 1927 study, Archives of Internal Medicine. Yes. Yeah. The reason I'm like wondering about this is I was so intrigued that, you know, fasting, which you think would be a, a calorie deficit that would prime your cells for properly responding to fuel. Like, what can we take from that seeing seemingly, quote, insulin resistance or carbohydrate intolerance? On paper, it looks like they didn't have a favorable response, but we know or I don't want to say that we know, but we see so many benefits from fasting. It makes me wonder how we qualify the response of the cells in that state. But the thing that I was wondering also is the order of meals. So like, say that you're in a calorie depleted state, your cells are presumably not filled up with fat. Say that you can eat a large amount of just fat and a large amount of just carbs. If you ate the carbs first and completely process them, would they fill glucose stores and then you ate the fat, would the fat safely enter cells compared to if you ate the fat first, would that instigate all of the problems with shutting off the, you know, properly working with insulin so then the glucose would actually stay in the bloodstream? Like, is it a situation where you could eat the exact same meal, the exact same macronutrients, but order the macronutrients differently and it would affect... And, and space them out in time. Yeah, but would the order change things, like eating the, the fat before the carbs compared to the carbs before the fat? I mean, I think in theory, the answer is probably yes. It, it would have an effect. The, the difficult thing about that actual scenario is that when you're eating food, you don't really like eat one macronutrient at a time, right? You could eat a food that is predominantly is, is higher in one micronutrient and lower in another macronutrient, but then it becomes a question of timing. So like, here's an example. Suppose I were to eat a meal that contained cheese and chicken. Okay, just as an example of like a food that's higher in fat and protein or a collection of foods that's higher in fat and protein and effectively devoid of carbohydrate energy. And then an hour later, I were to go eat a banana. Okay, so that's scenario number one. Or we could flip-flop it where I eat a banana and then an hour later, I eat the plate of cheese and chicken. But the question is, 
is one scenario safer than the other? Is one scenario, does it occur where the fatty acids end up getting, you know, positioned inside of liver and muscle and then they create insulin resistance? Or is there another situation whereby they came in after the fact and the carbohydrate got in first, so everything was fine? So, so yeah, I mean, if you ate cheese and chicken first and then you waited for some period of time, call it one hours, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, you would get the exact response that I just talked about earlier, which is that a, the presence of a significant amount of saturated fat then creates a traffic jam that blocks glucose and insulin from entering, blocks glucose from entering cells and insulin from communicating with cells. So in the same subjects that I just spoke about here, living with type 1 diabetes, that's exactly what was happening to them. The presence of the fat blocked the glucose from entering cells and blocked the insulin from communicating, and they ended up with delayed hyperglycemia three to five hours after the meal was over. I can guarantee you this, if you were to separate it out and they were to eat the cheese and chicken first, and then an hour later they were to eat the carbohydrate meal, they would get a very, very similar response because the biochemical, the, the, the partitioning of fuels occurs exactly the way that I just described. But if you flip-flopped it and you ate the carbohydrate first and the carbohydrate went in and the insulin was able to shuttle glucose inside of cells without a significant saturated fat and or amino acid roadblock, then great. Now the, the carbohydrate energy gets stored, it gets positioned inside of liver and muscle appropriately, glucose stays low, insulin stays low, everything's fine. If you followed that meal an hour or two hours or three hours or five hours later with a high fat meal, your glucose would not budge. That is an absolutely true statement. But here's the thing. If I were to eat a carbohydrate-rich meal at noon, and then I were to eat a fat-rich meal at 3 o'clock p.m., just like we're talking about, your glucose would likely not budge and your insulin levels would not budge. But that 3 o'clock meal is going to have a lasting effect. And that's what we see in people that we've been working with. And that's what a lot of the research is now beginning to show, is that fat and protein have a delayed glycemic response. And the delayed glycemic response is something that you can't necessarily, you can't just track what's going to happen over the course of the next two hours when you eat a meal. Because yes, you will see some aberrant blood glucose excursions and some aberrant insulin excursions, but you also have to take into account what's happening six hours down the road and 12 hours down the road and 24 hours down the road. And some of the research that actually goes into detail about what happens in that delayed postprandial period is now showing that glucose metabolism gets altered in a negative way over the course of time. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like 100 brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, 
You search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hack. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes, all the time, with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalonsCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Hi friends, one of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that 
that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner 
scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. That's something I wondered. Yeah, because a lot of times people will say that you should eat mixed macronutrient meals because it you know, will mitigate the insulin release or you won't have this huge spike. When I often wonder if it's better to, you know, have the carbs, have the spike, have it taken care of compared to an elongated insulin response that is, you know, continuing to happen maybe at a slower or at a lower level, but for a longer period of time. I know that seemed like a really specific question about the ordering of meals, but people on the intermittent fasting podcast, especially because people are eating in a smaller time window, they ask us all the time about the order of, you know, should they eat fats first? Should they eat carbs first? Like what order? I do think there is something to it. Yeah. I would say eat the carbohydrate first if you want. Yeah. That's what I've always, because <laughs> people say, oh, people say you should eat fat to fill yourself up. Then I'm like, but then if you eat carbs after, I just feel like you're not in a state to use them. Yeah, from a biological perspective, if you're going to eat a meal that is high in fat and or high in protein, if you choose to do that, which is totally fine, I would highly recommend eating the carbohydrate meal first before that so that you won't end up with a high blood glucose or a high insulin response as a result of eating this fat and protein. So in other words, eating the fat and protein causes an immediate as well as a delayed carbohydrate metabolism problem. So eat the carbohydrates first and then eat the fat and protein afterwards, and that should keep your blood glucose and insulin more controllable for sure. Some other questions for you. Say a person's been on a low-carb diet for a while, and they want to give a high-carb, low-fat diet a try. About transitioning over, one question I had was, because in your book, you talk about starting with, you know, like one meal at a time. Are you not worried that if a person's been doing a high-fat, low-carb diet for a long period of time, it could be potentially dangerous to start with, you know, one meal at a time? Like, wouldn't they sort of have to just jump all in and commit right at the beginning or like clear out the cells from fat first, like do calorie restriction first? (laughs) That's a fascinating question. And we did make sure to put in a specific sentence in the book, which basically said, look, this is the, after working with thousands of clients, the slow transition is the best way to do this for long-term success. It might be bumpy in the beginning, but don't worry about that. Especially, you know, if you're trying to like reverse type 2 diabetes, reverse pre-diabetes, seeing some elevated readings in the beginning, it's not that big of a deal. As long as people understand, those are, that's just the symptom. What you're doing is you're treating the cause of pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, which is insulin resistance. So let the road be bumpy, work on a solution that's going to last in the long term. And, and that's the way to do this. It's really, it's kind of like a, it's more like a mental thing and a, and a, a little bit of a, how your, your gut will respond. Some people can't handle so much fiber right away. But we also say, look, if you are following this protocol and you're seeing higher readings than you want to, and you're motivated to make these changes, then you absolutely can. And we also both acknowledge that in our own personal stories, we did both change overnight. So it's kind of like a, a nuanced situation that everybody can sort of look themselves in the mirror and decide 
what's best for me, which option am I going to choose? But they, they have an option. And do you know how fast the enzymatic changes or the, the fuel preferences in the cells for using carbs versus fats, like how fast that actually happens? And also glycogen storage potential, like does that actually rapidly grow the more carbs that you eat? Yeah, very good questions. So the question is, how quickly can you alter the glucose enzymatic machinery when you start eating a high-year carbohydrate diet. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The answer is it depends, and it depends on a number of things. Number one, it depends on how low carbohydrate of a diet you have been eating, how long you have been eating a low-carbohydrate diet. Are you significantly overweight? Yes or no. Are you active? Yes or no. Okay, those are the four sort of main variables. So let's take somebody who is 30 pounds overweight, relatively sedentary, has been eating a low-carbohydrate diet, like a ketogenic diet for a year. Okay? In that in situation, you can certainly see changes in, your, in the enzymatic response to carbohydrate and increased carbohydrate load. And that usually will happen within, within the first week. Okay? So it could take as long as a week for you to see significant changes in your blood glucose values. And if you're using insulin and or oral medication, you might take upwards of a week to recognize those changes as well. In somebody who is normal weight, has been eating a low-carbohydrate diet for, you know, six months and is very active, okay, they're likely going to see changes in their blood glucose response and or insulin use within 24 hours, just like Robbie did, just like I did, okay? So from an enzymatic perspective, the answer is the changes happen relatively quickly. From a whole body perspective and from an entire blood glucose regulation perspective, it usually is a little bit slower, but the answer is it can happen as quickly as 24 hours and it can happen as long as about a week, maybe 10 days at the very maximum. Truth be told, Robbie and I are flabbergasted at how quickly people change. When we first started this process, we used to think like, oh gosh, you know, somebody's been 60, 70 pounds overweight, it's going to take them months to see changes in their blood glucose and they'll see it significantly faster than that. So it's a nice thing. It's just, it seems counterintuitive that, you know, you could alter the enzymatic machinery in multiple tissues as well as your blood in a short period of time. But that's what we find to be true. And that's what a lot of the research also shows. How do you feel about, are you guys, you probably are, are you familiar with Ray Pete? I am familiar with him. I haven't read his stuff recently, but I definitely know who you're talking about. His diet really resonates with me because it's high carb. He loves fruit. It's actually high protein though, specifically like not muscle meats, but like fish, gelatin. He's really about optimizing thyroid, optimizing metabolism. But one of the main things of his diet is actually PUFA depletion. How do you guys feel about polyunsaturated fats? And do you think there's a benefit to the whole PUFA depletion protocols? Okay, so in general, there's this big concern, I think, when people start following a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet. They're like, am I going to be able to consume enough essential fatty acids? I think that question comes into play, and then it's all this conversation. And I guess it's just important for people to know that when you follow the Mastering Diabetes Method, the way we've put it together, we have made it so there's an insurance policy for essential fatty acids. So basically, our breakfast meals, we're encouraging people to, you know, once they gain insulin sensitivity, to focus on having, you know, their favorite fruits, you know, about four servings of fruit, some, some greens, some vegetables in there, and then 
a tablespoon of either ground chia seeds or ground flax seeds. And, and right then and there, people are consuming enough essential fatty acids on the omega-3 side, right then and there, just with that. And then when you're eating whole foods, like lettuce, bananas, mangoes, potatoes, all whole foods actually contain small amounts of essential fatty acids on the omega-3 and omega-6 side. And so you're actually getting even extra. And the biggest problem that we find is people are consuming too many omega-6 fats in their diet in general. And then there's this whole, this, all this conversation, okay, well, people should increase their omega-3s, like just eat more omega-3s when they're really not addressing the core problem here, which is the same enzyme that's responsible for converting on the omega-3 side, omega-6 side, delta-60 saturase, okay? So it's one enzyme that does the conversion process on both sides. When you're consuming too many omega-6 fats, the pathway prefers that side. It goes and deals with the omega-6s, and there's not enough enzymes on the omega-3 side to do the conversion and then to get enough EPA and DHA. So, I mean, in our program, our, our big focus is optimizing that ratio of omega-6 to omega-3s, somewhere between 4 to 1 and 1 to 1. And when you do that, then you, you optimize your conversion. And again, just in our program in general, consuming enough essential fatty acids is not difficult. And so I'm not actually know this guy as well as maybe Cyrus does, but this whole, this whole conversation in general about, oh, you, you need all these extra fats for all these great things to happen. And it's so important and necessary. In my opinion, it's, it's oftentimes blown out of, out of perspective. I mean, it's just, it's making a way, way bigger deal out of the need for essential fatty acids, how to get them, how to make sure that you do the conversions and all that. And it's just a misguided conversation when really the true root of the issue is the, the conversion that gets all messed up with the, the whacked out ratio. I mean, the standard American diet is like 30 to one. I mean, it's, it's really, really bad way off. So focusing on whole natural foods, you know, in our program, which is, you know, just a lot of plants, whole plants and optimizing that ratio is a big deal. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it's an important tenet of our program. Yeah, no, it, well, it does. The ironic thing about Ray P, and I actually, I, I think you guys would be really fascinated by his work. He actually is all about really like reducing those polyunsaturated fats as much as possible. So it's kind of like the, the flip side of what most people seem to be trying to do, even omega-3s. But yeah, so in any case, I have so many more questions, but you guys have been absolutely amazing. And I really want to be respectful of your time. Everything you're doing is just so incredible. And listeners, you've got to check out Mastering Diabetes. It has so much information, so much science. We didn't even really go into like the practical application of it, but it's all there. It's got recipes. It's got everything. And Cyrus and Robbie are as well offering our listeners a free quiz to figure out if this is a good approach for you. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash diabetes. The quiz is very interesting. It's, it's a fascinating tool to go and see how insulin resistant are you right now. And you get, you know, you answer a few questions and then, you know, this quiz on the back end ties up a bunch of numbers and you can find out, hey, wait a minute, am I following a lifestyle that leads me to be quite insulin resistant or am I doing things that make me quite insulin sensitive? So definitely check that out. I have one really, really quick question because a lot of my listeners are low carb and a lot of them have been doing that whole world and they might be intrigued by this. What I hear a lot is that 
when they try to do, you know, change up these macros that they find themselves starving, they feel like all of a sudden they're slave to blood sugar. Do you believe if a person sticks it out long enough that that will resolve? It's just a matter of transitioning to basically running on carbs again? Yeah. So you're saying if they were to make a quicker transition to a higher carbohydrate diet, they notice, what'd you say, their blood glucose goes a little bit out of whack? Yeah. A lot of people say that, if they, especially if they've been low carb for a long time, that when they try to bring back carbs, they feel like they lose all control. Like, you know, it's like on low carb, they didn't have to worry about blood sugar swings and appetite. And when they bring back carbs, all of a sudden carb cravings are back and it doesn't feel like a change that they want. And I just wonder if maybe it's a matter of needing to stick it out longer. Just like we were talking about, carbohydrate metabolism is, is quite changeable. And even if you don't see changes right off of the bat, okay, so let's put it this way. Let's back up here. If you do the opposite, if you go from eating a higher carbohydrate diet to a ketogenic diet, as you know, and as your listeners probably know, there's this thing called the keto flu. And the keto flu is anywhere from you know a two-day period upwards of a five to seven-day period at the very longest, in which people feel not so awesome. Part of the reason why they don't feel awesome is because they're forcing their liver and their muscles, and in particular, their brain to adapt to a new fuel source. And the new fuel source are these ketone bodies that are manufactured by your liver. So your liver has to basically ramp up its production of ketone bodies by taking fatty acids and then degrading them into acetyl-CoA and then making these fat, these ketone bodies to distribute to tissues all throughout your body and send up to your brain so your brain can switch over from using glucose as a fuel to using ketone body. So your central nervous system has to adapt. Your liver has to adapt to a new manufacturing process. Your muscles have to adapt to a new fuel source. And so it, it forces multiple tissues throughout your body to be, to be changing their fuel supply. And as a result of that, it takes a little bit of time. So in the same way that you know somebody who's transitioning towards a ketogenic diet might want to do it and stick with it so they can get through the symptoms of the keto flu and eventually get to a point where they are you know using predominantly ketone bodies as a fuel and predominantly fatty acids as a fuel, I would argue the same thing for people who are switching towards a higher carbohydrate intake. It may feel weird at first. It may feel strange. You might have digestive problems. You might have a difficult time thinking properly. Your energy levels might be weird. But over the course of a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, if you truly do keep your total fat intake low and you truly are eating a significant quantity of carbohydrates that are whole carbohydrates, that are not refined coming from packaged, processed, you know, cookies, crackers, chips, and the like, then I'm very confident that even if it feels weird at first, you're going to start to feel dramatically better. Your energy levels will go up. Your blood glucose will be more controllable. Your medication use will likely come down and you might even lose a significant amount of weight in a short period of time. I love it. Yeah. I think people think they'll gain weight when actually, I think if you basically just ate carbs, it would be almost not impossible, but gaining weight would be very difficult just from like a pure perspective of how fat is formed in the body. So listeners, this is not just adding back carbs. It's the low fat context, the whole, the whole foods context, also important. So the last question I ask every single guest on this podcast, it's really quick. It's just because I know how important mindset is surrounding everything. It's not just diet. It's not just all of that stuff. So what is something that you're both grateful for? I tell you what I'm grateful for right now. I kind of like a broken record if anybody like follows me on Instagram or whatnot, but I'm just obsessed with fruit and I am grateful. <laughs> I am grateful for the amazing fruit that is coming into season right now. I just got some, some white peaches over the weekend and some really delicious cherries. 
So I'm excited about all that summer has to bring when it comes to high quality fruit. Do you like pineapple? You know what's funny? <laughs> pineapple is one of the fruits I like, do not like. The chubby- I mean, I've had it in Hawaii and I've had like white pineapple. And when it's tree ripened or plant ripened, whatever you want to call it, pineapples don't grow on trees. <laughs> when, when it's like it comes straight from the, the plant and it's ripened there, it's good. And it doesn't really cut my mouth. But some of the, you know, ones you buy at the grocery store, just, I don't know. It just doesn't, doesn't work out for me. The diet I thrived on that I'm trying to get back to was actually really high lean protein and high pineapple. It was basically the pineapple would digest the protein, but then it was like high carb, low fat. It, it did really well for me. You, tr- you truly are the ultimate biohacker. I, 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 <laughs> these nuances are really fun. I love it. How about you, Cyrus? I'm actually super grateful that I'm actually, I'll be honest with you. I'm pretty, I'm pretty damn grateful that Robbie's my business partner. He's a, he's a great guy. And, you know, he's brings a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and a ton of experience to the table. And, you know, the two of us have been able to build a business that's truly changing the lives of people around the world. And we set it out early where we, we literally want to change the conversation in, in the world of diabetes and affect 1 million people. And we're well on our way to doing that. And I would not be able to do it without him. So, Robbie, you're stood. Oh, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> the feeling is mutual. Read our acknowledgments in our book, everybody out there. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. You really are changing the world. It's amazing. Listeners, check it out. And maybe you can come back for a part two in the future because I could talk to you guys for like so much longer. So thank you so much. Yeah, we're just scratching the surface right here. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And thank you for putting in the time. Really understand this stuff. Just like Robbie was saying, very few podcasters really, really, really understand diet to a, to a really super nerd detail. And clearly you do. So it's, it's always fun to talk with you and you know geek out on a lot of the things that actually do matter. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you both so much. And I'll talk to you again. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.